2: We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on Earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com.
1: Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Chef Daisy Ryan and Greg Ryan of Bell's Restaurant. In this episode, we'll talk to Daisy and Greg about building a future together in San Inez. Reinventing Hospitality Post-COVID, and we'll get our first double Julia moment of the season. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. On this show, we've covered Julia's admiration for chefs and Julia's love of Santa Barbara, but not Julia and Paul as a power couple. Yes, you might call it soft power, but certainly later in her career, Julia had influence. And as a couple, before Julia was influential, their power came from strength, a strength created through a partnership built not only on love, but friendship, mutual respect, as well as shared values and goals. In Paul and Julia's case, they had opened new worlds to each other. Having met at work, famously the CIA's predecessor, the OSS, during World War II, they explored new countries together. After marriage, Paul taught Julia more about art and culture, notably French. Once a love of cooking was instilled in Julia, they traded places, with Paul supporting Julia's passion to teach cooking, write about food, and ultimately appear on television. Throughout their marriage, they worked hand-in-hand, professional and social life intertwined in a way that was deliberately satisfying and enriching to both. Two people who share a similar intertwining is power couple chef Daisy Ryan and her husband Greg Ryan, co-proprietors of the award-winning Bell's Restaurant in the San Ynez Valley. Like Julia and Paul, Daisy and Greg Bennett work as servers at Thomas Keller's top New York City restaurant per se. Both graduates of culinary school, Greg in Portland, and Daisy at the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, they ended up in front-of-house roles in some of New York City's best restaurants, like Tribeca Grill and Gramercy Tavern. Having vowed to return to their West Coast roots, Daisy grew up in the San Inez Valley and Greg in Oregon's Willamette Valley, they moved back to L.A. to help open the Line Hotel in Koreatown before spending three years in hospitality management in Austin, Texas. With the birth of their son, Henry, they moved to the San Inez Valley to open a restaurant and be closer to family. That restaurant became Bell's in Los Alamos, a French-inspired bistro in the former home of Bell Street Farms. Since its opening in 2018, Bell's has rapidly risen to acclaim. Daisy was named Best New Chef by Food & Wine, followed by Esquire naming Bell's one of its Best New Restaurants in 2020 and the restaurant garnered a Michelin star in 2021. This year, Daisy is nominated for a James Beard Foundation Award for Best Chef California. Not bad considering Bell's is the first time Daisy's been at the helm as a restaurant chef, paired with Greg's extensive front of house experience. The couple's success has spawned companion hospitality, which includes Bell's, Bar La Cote, pre-dive barbecue, The Other Room, a wine and beer bar, and a nonprofit the valley. Daisy and Greg join us today to share how Bell's has put Los Alamos on the international culinary map and how they're navigating a rapidly changing restaurant world. Welcome to the podcast, Daisy and Greg.
3: Thank you for having us.
1: Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're glad you could uh, join us after everything's drying out in Southern California before the next storm. Uh, so, Let's let's start sort of at the beginning. And I was curious to hear from both of you, I think, when you first opened Bells, what you were hoping to achieve. Like, did you have big dreams or were we just trying to get your first restaurant to work?
3: Whew. <laughs> uh, obviously, we've been asked that question a couple of times at this point. Um, and I think that uh, we since Greg and I met and have been together uh, living in New York and then LA and Austin, we always talked about what we might want to do with our own restaurant someday. Um, and there was never really any question, I think maybe to Greg, but never to me that we would have our own restaurant at some point. Um, and kind of towards, um, the end of our dreaming about it before it became a reality, Greg and I talked a lot about, um wanting to we didn't necessarily talk about the cuisine um but talked a lot about how we wanted to open a restaurant or uh, or we talked about restaurants in general um are they the type of restaurant that you go to uh once a year, once a month or once a week. Uh and we really decided upon once we knew we would probably open up uh in the Saninas Valley and then later Los Alamos that we not only wanted to be a restaurant that you went to once a week, but we wanted to be one. We needed to be one because we didn't have a giant audience. Um, And we knew that we wanted to have a restaurant that um, you felt something when you were there, that it wasn't about the food solely, that it was about how you felt when you were in the space and the people that were there with you, whether that be your dining companion or the people working within the restaurant and uh, that that it had more of that I suppose, institutional feel that, um, had some staying power that, that wasn't so much of the time and, and trends that were going on in the moment, but something that could span, um, you know, over years, would this be the type of restaurant that you would eat in now and then would probably want to eat in, in, you know, 10 years, which is just, I guess, smart business, but also, uh, was a, was a feel that we wanted. Mm -hmm. Does that sound right, Greg?
4: I just wanted to figure out if we could open the next day after the, <laughs> yeah. after the after the, the 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 one day of service to be like, can we open tomorrow? And we're like, yeah, okay, let's just keep going. Um, I, I think, I, I, yes, uh, Daisy is absolutely um, correct, as well as as you have asked that question. I tried to kind of think back to ourselves now in twenty twenty three, talking to each other in twenty eighteen. And trying to explain to Daisy and Greg of 2018 of, like, what has gone on. And I think both of us would be uh, utterly shocked by it uh, in almost every way. Um, I think that for us, what we set out to achieve really was two things. One, this is just where we wanted our son to grow up. And so this was really this industry or this profession is really all that we know. And so part of it was like, well, we're, I guess we need to open a restaurant cause it's all really know what to do or how to do. And secondly, I think what we wanted to really achieve in my opinion, and maybe she kind of already mentioned this a little bit is we just wanted to build a restaurant. We wanted to spend time in. And that is encompassing of both the cuisine, uh, the feel, the music, Uh, the way that we wanted to try and treat each other professionally operationally and without there being any sort of like idea whether or not any of that was going to be at all successful in any way Um, but it it really was more or less of just we don't really know how to do this any other way than how we're doing it and let's just see if this works and there'd be days where it would be like a slow Sunday and I'd like be sitting outside on the side of the restaurant and being like, I don't like, no one's coming. Like this is over. No one's coming.
3: <laughs> That's that still happens,
4: right? <laughs> yeah. It still happens sometimes. And then Daisy like walks outside and it's like, you need to calm down, like stop freaking out. And then the first, t- you know, someone will walk in the door and, and, and then you kind of start your day. Um, but yeah I, I think that we just wanted to try and build a restaurant we wanted to spend time in I think is is really what what it kind of boils down to
1: well, and I think you both described what is foundationally what restaurants are about in the original you know French meaning of and how um you, you know hospitality is such such a core component of actually what make restaurants succeed like I always say you can have the best food in the world, but if the rest of it isn't working well, the restaurant isn't going to succeed. And, and certainly not the long-term vision you had. So I love hearing that. So, I, you know, I'm also remind everyone who's listening that you've opened this restaurant across what couldn't have been and, and succeeded at one of the most tumultuous times. You were not open very long before the pandemic. You got a lot of your most recent accolades during the pandemic. And um, I wanted to ask you before we talk a little bit about that, has the 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 success that's come out of so much adversity changed your your views of what you'd like to accomplish or has it just or conversely has it enabled you to think bigger and kind of plan a bigger vision
3: i th- i think um yeah, it's definitely changed things. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I think about it a lot. what did what did I see when we when we first opened bells, like, what did I see happening? And I think ultimately, I can't either I can't remember or i I didn't know. Um, I think if I truly look back at, you know, myself and greg and and just our vision five years ago, it was living in the moment and creating something that we would enjoy doing and that we were proud of. Uh, We certainly never, ever, I mean, I feel maybe a lot of people say this, but never had any idea of the recognition that we would receive uh, as a restaurant. And it feels, you know, kind of tenfold in our, in our pride about it just because, because we have done exactly what we wanted to do. And I mean, in having to um, ebb and flow a little bit with, of course, business practices and, and, you know, the practicality of owning a business, but ultimately we, we act on a day-to-day basis in a way that we want to, um, as far as, how we operate. Um, And I think, yes, with, with everything that has gone on in the past five years, of course, the pandemic and and some of the accolades that we've received um, there. Yeah. There's this, there's this growing pressure. um, And actually the word that Greg and I have kind of found to use instead is become the word tension. There's this tension, which is, uh, is kind of sounds like a negative thing, but is, is truly is this positive thing of this, um, push and pull of what is expected of us, what we expect of ourselves, what we expect of each other, and our staff um, and our community. Um, and yeah, it, it's a lot. It's a lot of tension. It's a lot of pressure to make sure that now these multiple businesses perform in a way that they need to, because they're not just about us anymore. Um, and and it was never about just us. To begin with, but you know, we were the ones with the with the vision and the drive to create all of this. Um, uh, and now, yeah, there's just it's a it's a there's a lot more components to it. Um, so, uh, and and also, you know, this this area, this region, is clearly very important to me as I grew up here. Um, but as I you know become important to Gray, and of course, our son is growing up here. And the people that build this entire valley, this entire community, are incredibly important to us. And it feels there feels this growing momentum, not just with us and our businesses, but other some other restaurants and a lot of the winemakers and just things that are happening here. That now I think that we all, you know, um, are leaning on one another and helping one another and supporting one another to create this. Um, this just kind of destination and uh, current that is happening uh, throughout this Valley. And so, yeah, it just, it's, it's, it's just bigger, <laughs> I guess is the only way to, to put it.
4: So, and there's a little bit of, um, I always say, or I, I think about it in that what Bells has offered us is, um, a little bit of selfishness in a way um in terms uh, there's always kind of a running joke that Daisy and I have is that when we opened this restaurant and there was a decision that Daisy was going to be the chef because we couldn't afford any of our friends and no one was coming and it was just going to be us and we're okay let's just figure this out and there was always this running joke of me Telling her like, okay, like we just need to do this for six more months, and we'll find somebody, and you're you don't have to be the chef anymore, and we're gonna find someone. And then six months go by, and then and now a year goes by, and it's okay. Like we just got to figure out how to like find someone else, and and then at some point there became this inflection point uh, in the best way possible, where it was this this thing where it was like, no, like no, you're 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 the chef. Like you've now <laughs> you 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 have like you want to be the chef. You need to be the chef. like these are all these things that we never really had planned. Yeah, and um, it's as simple as
3: too with that that I I was so uncomfortable just having grown up and learned in the restaurants that we learned in where chef is such a a, a specific title and me has so holds so much meaning right and I and I for the first several years of the restaurant honestly and up until relatively recently was very uncomfortable with people even calling me that mm-hmm. um, and then you kind of learn to accept that I, I guess I guess I am. I guess <laughs> I'm a chef One now. one
1: award too many now <laughs> yeah, to, yeah, to yeah, sort yeah, of duck out. You're
3: yeah, no, it's Greg's fine. not gonna let um, you
1: retire. Like you're the But
3: the funny thing is too is that I mean and I, I was gonna say this earlier, but is that when we did talk about our ideas of like what kind of restaurant do we want to be once a week, once a month, once a year, one thing that we did very much agree on is like we are not a chef driven restaurant. Like we do not want to be that. because um, that's such a such a so that is so of, I think like, you know, of the time in the past couple of decades and, and television and all of that. And, um, and we, we don't want it to be about that. It is about the entire space. And I do think that, and, and I'm obviously incredibly humbled to receive the awards that, that I have gotten as, as a chef so far, but, but in am, you know, 10 times happier with the awards that are about the whole restaurant. And because it is so, anybody who's ever worked in a restaurant or, you know, you know, quite frankly, just paid attention when they're in a restaurant, know that it has nothing to do with one person. It has to do with a a whole slew of people. And um, none of us would be able to do anything without one another. I mean, unless you are, you know, a much smaller restaurant that serves a much smaller amount of people every day. So, and even then. Uh, so it's just yeah, it's been an interesting for me personally an interesting transformation and then of course, for us as um, husband and wife and as a restaurant and and it's just a it's a it's an interesting thing.
4: And I think that just to kind of answer your your question, we've kind of gone gone off the the rails here a little bit. but what what we have found Bell's to find some because of Bell's success, what we've been able to build kind of organically, what we hope is is a community. And this very selfish part of who we are, and that we're never, this is where we're going to live for the rest of our lives, and that we want to continue to find and foster and promote and be around other people who also want to do interesting culinary, hospitality things. And so you then get a chance to. Say, okay, well, there's no place to eat oysters, really, in this valley. So let's then, we have this opportunity to open a seafood restaurant. Like, let's do that. And we just met someone who does amazing barbecue. Like, this isn't really our idea. So how do we be a part of that with them while also allowing them or, or you know, allow, not allowing, but just, get, you know, helping with this opportunity of barbecue behind this restaurant. And it it, it starts to kind of snowball a bit in a really cool way where you start to try and put these things in place or try and figure out how to put these things in place that are not just beneficial to you it's kind of beneficial to this whole idea of like as this community grows and evolves a little bit and i think a lot of that has had to do with the success of of bells itself
1: well, I, I love that you mentioned that because that, that's 100% the definition of what the foundation in creating the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience and the what will be the 2023 Taste of Santa Barbara is looking to highlight is there's just this amazing spirit of it's kind of twofold. It's like growth and development and excitement that seems to be snowballing and also collaboration. And And I'm wondering if that collaboration has a lot to do that at the same time, Santa Barbara and the Santa Andreas Valley are big destinations and are, are well known, at least in a lot of circles, but it's still a small place. And I think people forget how small a place it is. And Los Alamos, being even smaller. And I think even with your success, it's not like Los Alamos has tripled in size. And, you know, I think Daisy (laughs) mentioned that you're in a location where like, you're like, you gotta have people come back or, you know, certain times of the year. But I was just, I was curious to ask you more about those two things. Like this, do you think there's a special spirit in the Valley? And do you, how are you like levered? How can you leverage Los Alamos? Or is it actually kind of a liability you're working around? Greg, this is me.
3: uh, Uh, Yeah, that one's you.
4: (laughs) Okay. Uh, um, I would say um, it is. I uh, I think sometimes you forget how small this town is. I think because of the amount of. I think we've never we've always just been busy. Not even in terms of like the restaurant, just in terms of like we are just physically always busy, and so you don't really consider the fact that you're in a town of about 2,000 people, and you... I remember we were doing this dinner somewhere, and they were kind of introducing us, and this person speaks, and he's... this person is a champion of our restaurant. They... he is someone who always <laughs> spoken so highly of what we do, and he's sitting there introducing us, and he's like, you know, they have this restaurant... In this town of like, there's no, there's nobody there, and I just remember like, how dare you say that? <laughs> like, I took I took offense to it, and then I like kind of pulled back and and trying to now think about putting myself in somebody else's shoes. And this was another thing that Days and I talked about when we opened the restaurant that. You know, this area is, it has, it's a winemaker area. It's agrarian in many ways. It feels very genuine. It's authentic. It doesn't, it doesn't have a polish. It has a authenticity to it that may not necessarily coincide any longer with other wine regions of California. And Daisy had grown up traveling with Europe with her parents for their parents' business. And there was always this kind of narrative of, oh, I am nowhere and I'm in some random village in France and I'm just, we're going to stop and we're going to stay here for the night and we're going to walk into this bistro. There's there's not a, a street light anywhere. You know, is anything open? And then you walk into this place and it is vibrant and it is full of energy. And you're energy. like, where did
3: all these people in this place come <laughs> from? I haven't seen anything for miles and miles. And then you walk, yeah, you walk into those rural towns and yeah, there's all these people doing this thing and you're like, I want to be a part of this. What is this?
1: Well, and I yeah. feel like that's so fitting that even though Michelin and Michelin stars have sort of become a, you know, beast of their own, the original idea is so, uh, you know, it's so fitting for you guys to have earned one because, you know, that's the idea of that type of thing that you're talking about is discovery and, yeah. you know, for better or for worse, needing a car. Because for those who've forgotten, Michelin was about selling tires and <laughs> damn, I don't know, roughly
4: still is, but. It's and, and yeah, the idea of like it, that it's worth the drive. And we talk a lot about in during our, our service meetings is that we talk about emotion a lot, and that we we always kind of always try and use this term like we, we play with house money in, the, in our restaurant. There are people that are visiting because they're coming from Los Angeles or San Francisco, or they're coming from somewhere else. Now, they are coming from Santa Barbara, from San Luis Obispo. But typically, you know, a certain amount of of our guests are coming from somewhere else and they are typically on vacation or they're going somewhere. So they're already kind of emotionally in a different place. And if you are able to kind of take that already kind of positive energy and like ratchet that up, like you don't just have a guest coming once. You have a guest who is now coming multiple times a year because they, they are in this mindset of like, I liked how I felt when I was there. And I now want to feel that way again, I know where to go, and that is a difficult i think in my opinion, that is a more difficult thing to sometimes do in a larger city because there's so many other options, and there's always like the next hot restaurant or there's always the next thing, or something doesn't really change any longer and so if you are able to meet slash exceed someone's expectations when you are on a street that has not a stop sign or a street light and come like, like come tonight, Monday night, there isn't really another restaurant that's open on our street, on Bell Street. And so there are people who come in for dinner and they're like, there's nobody here. And then you walk into our restaurant and it is brimmed full of people. And there is just, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to describe or it's hard to kind of, it, it, there's just an emotional feeling to it that I think that we have been able to really take hold of.
2: Mm.
1: yeah the word home comes to mind in just that description
4: yeah uh, for sure for sure i mean it is while we have so many more people that work with us <laughs> way more people than we ever imagined on a nightly basis i i think that we have been able to really m- hit home for people in a way that is that is emotional that isn't necessarily about oh this is the best dish I've ever had or that this is the best service I've ever had. But because of where we're located and then on top of the type of just experience that, that we are able to try and provide, it, it, it really, it really kind of, it, well, connects. It's, it's, the dots it sticks connect. with, yeah, it sticks with people. It sticks with people. At least that's the hope. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, no, I think there, there's some evidence of, of, uh, that. All right, we'll take a break and we'll be back with more from culinary power couple Daisy and Greg Ryan. Stay with us.
2: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our Heritage and Traditions, Master Cheesemaker Program, and the American Propensity for Innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, Get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com.
1: Welcome back. We're talking to Chef Daisy Ryan and partner Greg Ryan of Bells about their growing San Inez Valley business. So I want to kind of hear more. We've sort of talked around the edges of uh, companion hospitality. But before we talk about that, we started to delve into it. And I know you guys have done some innovative things. So I wanted to cover, you know, the pandemic has certainly taught everybody lessons of all various kinds, and certainly the restaurant business. But I was curious to hear specifically from you guys about, what the pandemic taught you and, and really how you made some big changes in your in your business model. I don't know whether you're planning to make them already or because of the pandemic. So I, I would love to hear your thoughts on, on pandemic <laughs> lessons and changing business models.
3: Uh, I'm, I'm sure the lessons that we learned are not dissimilar to many other people, not even just in the, the restaurant and hospitality business, but in every business is that uh, is to be flexible um, and that every time something uh, kind of comes at you from left field, it's not the end of the world and uh, how do you meet challenges and and uh, jump over hurdles um, just so with a little bit, honestly with more ease, um, I think it taught us that uh, and that hard work pays off sometimes and and that you got to do what you got to do. Um, and we, yeah, we made, a we made a lot of changes as many people did. Uh, we most notably moved from being an a la carte restaurant at dinner to being a prefix menu. Uh, and then of course to uh, service included as well. Uh, it was definitely something that we had talked about a lot of once, once we bought Bell's kind of new, what type of direction we wanted to go in once we decided I was going to cook. Uh, I was really most comfortable having gone to to three years of culinary school at the CIA um, and getting, being fortunate enough to travel in France a lot with my, my parents for their business. Uh, French food seemed what I was most comfortable with. I um, have a very dear friend, Julia Sullivan, who has a restaurant in Nashville. And she and I were talking and I said, you know, I'm, I'm really nervous about this because I've really never cooked professionally. Um, I was trained in it, but, but was always in the dining room. And she said, Daisy, just do what you're comfortable with. She goes, you know, you have a good palate, you know, what good food looks like, do what you're comfortable with. So that ended up being French food. And then, and then ultimately French bistro food, uh, made sense for our location and the proximity to winemakers. And, and we certainly looked at, um, chef Keller's success with Bouchon in yontville and, um, so, so that was the catalyst for French food. But also, um, I, I when I, I think I was about twenty, I was in France with my dad, and um, through one of his manufacturers who owned a one Michelin star restaurant in Provence, I set up a week stage, and that restaurant did a really cool thing that's much more common in France, where it wasn't a super fine dining restaurant but they had a prefix menu every day and they didn't even have options but it you know as i recall it there was a little canapé or a mousse bouche and then a salad and then um or maybe it was just an appetizer of some sort and then you had at that point a choice of meat or fish and then some small dessert and that was all they did and they changed it daily and i always just really really loved that model um but, but you know, from the get go, it seemed like well, we're already doing something a little bit crazy in this teeny, tiny town. um so we're we we have to in a way, cater to people a little bit more, do something they're more comfortable with. We have to get people in the door, so it was something that Greg and I had talked about obviously we have we have experience in prefix menus and tasting menus, um so it's something we know uh and then, when the pandemic happened, we thought, and we did have the opportunity to reopen for. Um, you know, outdoor and indoor dining for a minute, and then just outdoor again, and all the back and forth of it. uh, there was something about the prefix menu that really lent itself to everything that was going on. one, you already know there's a there is an known amount of how much people are gonna spend, right because it's at the cost of the menu. Uh, which gives you a little bit of reliability financially on on our operation side of things, but also there's a calmness to it. Uh, We thrived on Bell's Bell's, uh, a la carte menu before the pandemic thrived on this energy where we didn't even do outdoor dining at the time. We packed lots of people in this tiny space and it was fun and the winemakers are walking back and forth across the dining room sharing wine with each other and people are standing at the bar and it was much more of that um, you know, that nightlife feel, even in this middle of nowhere town that made the restaurant have the energy that it did. Um, and obviously, and, and that, that just wasn't, that didn't lend itself to the pandemic. So mm. it, we automatically had people that were sitting, they weren't standing up, walking around, a uh, lot more two tops, uh, people were spaced out. And and there was yeah there was there was some serenity to it in a way and and on the kitchen side as well a, a a prefix menu or a tasting menu inherently lends itself to a calmness in the kitchen and I think in a world of so much unknown and so much chaos there was something that was known so that was that was something that we switched to and and as we got further and further into the prefix and closer to a place in the world where everybody thought, okay, maybe this is the end, we're going to reopen. When you guys reopen, are you going to go back to your normal menu? We got that question a lot. And Greg and I thought, no, we're, we're never going back. Um, and uh, yeah, so that so that really pushed us into doing something I think that both of us wanted to do far before, um, but didn't really ever have the reason to take something that was working uh, and change it. So that was the big outcome. And then of course, adding, um, service included in giving servers more stability, you know, it doesn't matter how busy we are tonight, you're still making this amount. Um, and it has allowed us to, um, uh, uh, offer healthcare and, uh, you know, there's still a lot of, it's, there's still a lot of unknowns with it. And it's something that we, more Greg than me, but has to tweak and look at all the time. And does this work? How does this work? Um, so, so you know, it's ongoing, but isn't everything all the time? Mm.
1: I'm struck by that. And, and maybe, Greg, you want to comment that you, you've also described something that, that I think has been brewing is essential and needed a shock to get back, which is that you guys have taken control back from the diners of really running the yeah. restaurant on the terms that you want, rather than the... Old the customer is always right and we have to offer everything to them.
4: Yeah, it's a little bit of, of of both those things in both in terms of both the menu and and service included. Um in terms of the menu and how we offer it, kind of speaking to what Daisy said, what we what we quickly realized as folks were coming from other cities to come eat dinner, we really tried to think about how someone was eating, say, in like a major market where there was someone sits down and all of a sudden someone's like, and, and rightfully so through for rule, they're just like, you have an hour and a half to eat. You have to put in, you have to do this, 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 and this. And there became this very kind of anxious energy when you were dining in a major city during the pandemic um, when we were allowed to reopen. And and so what we what we quickly realized is people came up was that the prefix allowed for us to kind of remain in control without having to dictate all of these rules to you. I didn't have to tell you dinner was only an, an hour and 45 minutes because there was a beginning and a middle and an end, and you were done in two hours. So there was no need to have that kind of conversation. And mm-hmm. that there was there wasn't a ton of people around anyone. <laughs> it was a very small town, and so there became a different sort of energy that we were allowed to, a more calm, soothing sort of energy of just like, you're out, you're out of this major city, and now you're up here, and we're going to take care of you, and it's not going to feel rushed, but you're also, but we're also not going to let you sit here all night either, and, and there's going to be a little bit of a give and take um, in, in terms of of that, of that experience, and by offering multiple choices within the menu Well, yes, it allowed for a certain sort of set idea in the kitchen. It also allowed for there to be somewhat of – like some autonomy on the guest side where they weren't – it wasn't a chef's tasting menu. It was here are our options tonight and you get to choose, but you don't get to choose all of them. So we're going to kind of like find this compromise middle ground of – that this is kind of the best path forward for us, and it gives you all some choices, but we are able to kind of keep everything in in line with how this meal is going to go um and and it like we it helped with some shortcuts in terms of servers who was like, oh somebody's a vegetarian or somebody has this like those are already kind of built into the menu, so it it allowed for that to be a bit an easier of a conversation I'm struck by how french that is and
1: and and it's also a it, it stands out more in France, but is true in a lot of Europe. And a lot of it has to do with practicalities there. You know, you can't afford to have as many people in the dining room and that's how they've managed it for years. But, I, but I'm but i struck by, you know, that that's a very common thing to find throughout France is, yeah, is, is, yeah. is a set menu that may change daily or semi-weekly, but it's... And then
4: not to mention just in terms of the fact of daisy's skill set and our ability to connect with farmers and purveyors on a day-to-day basis where you are not trying to deal with a lot of commodity produce and a lot of commodity proteins those things change daily so if Mm. you've put yourself in this fixed idea of like oh like this this menu is laminated i can't change for the next (laughs) six months or i have to (laughs) r&d this thing it's like no like we are going to the farm stand every morning and picking these things up. So we need to make this change today. Or Stephanie Mutz, who's one of our fishmongers and our uni diver, is he is here with a 20 pound halibut. And who are we like this? There's so many the, the ecosystem is is vast and is deep. And so you have to kind of Really embrace all of those things, and this menu allows for that too, to be embraced.
3: Yeah, and I think that it also just for me with with the food and there's this 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 ide- ideology that I, I would like to see, well, everybody get away from, but the way that we operate largely in America, of course, in other parts of the world, is I want what I want and I want it now. And with just the way that everything is with Amazon and I mean, that's largely possible. You can have whatever you want. I mean, given that you have the means and um, but, but sometimes even if you don't, you know, you walk in the grocery store and it's all there. I can serve figs 365 days a year if I want to. Um, And that just seems it's a not sustainable and B, you're also doing yourself a detriment because once you've decided, oh, I'm put this thing on the menu and it's going to stay there, you end up compromising on so many levels. You end up compromising the quality because it's like, well, I need to have strawberries on this dish, so I'll take them from wherever I can get them. Um and, you know, I don't think we have to go through the like supply chain discussion of it, but also it, it, yeah. It, it, and again, the word flexible comes to mind. It's like, we, we all have to be flexible. You know what? Yeah. This thing we, you know, it's, and that goes into 86ing items on menus or something that we don't have a lot of and people come up for lunch and get upset. Well, I wanted the uni crepe. Well, we only did this many today because we only had this many, um, and people's expectations of. That they need to have everything all the time is it's just like just doesn't make really doesn't make sense and uh, is something that we've slow I think in a way over the past five years we've pushed people to realize you know we're we're gonna feed you well uh, just there has to be some trust so so the prefix helps with that
1: yeah no I think there's a whole necessary reset of societal expectations. And I think that was really well put. I see that with my children who've grown up with Amazon Prime. And (laughs) if something can't be delivered within 48 hours, they're like apoplectic. And I'm like, okay,
3: <laughs> we're, we're familiar with that.
1: Yeah, nobody is crazy. Like now we're I, who knows what this implication is for the next, you know, Gen Z, of, right. you know, that and so well, we better start Yeah, it's good that you're starting now to, to try to, re, to reset yeah. that. And you know, yes. I spent a lot of time advocating for particularly with my own family about eating seasonally a because you still get the best taste if you eat something seasonal and local. And be it's terrible for the environment and it's just like it, it's also a very french philosophy of there's actually some pleasure in ha- and making things special at only one time of year once it's available right. all the time everywhere you take it for granted
3: yeah it's like having I have to explain to our son why isn't it christmas all the time well if it was christmas all the time you wouldn't care about christmas
1: <laughs> 100%. Someone in my neighborhood had Christmas lights up all year and I was like, actually, it makes it unspecial. Or at least yeah, yeah, turn exactly. them off if you don't want to take them up and down. <laughs> so before before we go to break, I just wanted to hear uh, quickly from you guys about you know how things are going with Companion Hospitality. You kind of mentioned that it sounds like the expansion of it has been very organic and wanted to also hear how Feed the Valley fits into that.
4: Yeah. Uh, I... It has exceeded any of our aspirations <laughs> uh, in almost every way. Um, I think Daisy and I sometimes try and say that, to a certain extent, like Bell's is really what she and I have to say about this this industry in many ways, and that really anything and everything else that we do after this is um, hopefully having others come into our fold with us that have something to say and be able to offer a platform and offer infrastructure and support to, to kind of have that showcase itself, uh, while also being able to live in this Valley and and do things that we are also very proud of. So things like Barla Coat that we own with, uh, our friend and the chef and co-owner Brad Matthews. Uh, and he is, he loves the ocean. He loves seafood and, uh, he loves, uh, you know, Portuguese and, and Spanish, uh, kind of leaning, uh, uh, you know, culinary ideas. And, and so we, and I just in one like I said before, I just I just really need to eat oysters. I just need to have oysters at the ready at all times. And so Greg, <laughs> that's it comes. going against
3: everything we were just talking about.
4: Well, but can you get well, them at the, the ready from oysters? Stuff? <laughs> uh, farmed, farmed, farmed. Oh yeah, yeah. We get them from Neil, uh up in Morro Bay. And there's fish that we get from uh from Stephanie and things of that sort. It, uh, yeah i understand he's
1: leveraging california okay. daisy he's yeah
4: i'll going. let him i'll yeah, let him yeah. slide yeah. On. <laughs>
1: yeah thank you very much
4: uh yeah what's your just still, as long as you know amazon product? just as long as you don't, don't amazon yeah. prime no, i'm order. not gonna amazon prime <laughs> customers. Um, and and so this restaurant barlacote has been here uh, a little over a year and a half and is just this amazing 40 seat seafood tavern in Los Olivos that has its own personality, has its own kind of depth of flavor in terms of our our staff and our in the kitchen. Um, And what we always hope for is that there are there are multitudes of people every week that eat in both restaurants. And there are some that eat that have no idea that we are connected in any way, which we're really proud of. In some, like I what, I, what I envision or what I hope for is that somebody f- finishing one of their meals on either side and someone kind of tells them that, you know, we have this other restaurant, vice versa. And they're like, oh, I, I just ate there yesterday. And then you kind of start to play back in your mind certain service points or food points or just certain experiential items of your meal that then call back to both restaurants. And then you start to see that thread a little bit. Um, and and we feel like something like Barla Coat is this nice kind of palate cleanser in this valley where there is there's a lot of really amazing restaurants that tend to lean somewhat New American or kind of quote unquote ranch kind of restaurants, and that this is something that that kind of stands out. And so we're, we're we're super proud of the team and super proud of the of what we put out uh, on a daily basis. And then things like Nick and Brendan at Predite which has been someone that we've been working with since 2020 and that we have slowly just worked together as a team to help kind of bring their aspirations and their visions to, to life and their, their love of both California and barbecue. Uh, while it's still just being kind of a two-man crew with them, we, you know, we're, their, we're their infrastructure, we're, like, we're their support and it really allows them to do what they do best which is cooking and really trying to be who they are without all those things that get in your way when you're trying to open a business when you're trying to run a restaurant we try and help take care of a lot of those things on the outside on the outskirts um things like the other room that's really just to be honest we just there was no place to drink on tuesdays really (laughs) here in the valley and um we just felt like it was it was time that we needed to find something, and and so it, it, it's it's in a collaboration with some friends of ours who own another little um, uh, kind of speakeasy slash um, uh, homebrewers uh, uh, shop in Solvang uh, called the Back Room, and so the four of us, along with um, our beverage director and and, and their beverage director. Um, are all kind of partners in this little tin tap beer bar and some really fun wines that we sell retail that our, our beverage director Emily takes care of. Uh, but it's really trying to fulfill kind of more personal things for us where it's like, we're going to be here. We really want to, like, we want a certain type of beer bar or beer and wine bar and we don't see it yet. So let's just do it ourselves. Um, the same thing will be for when we uh, are in. We're partnering with some friends who work with us now, who are opening up a, a Thai restaurant here in the valley. Um, Nick and Ashley Ramirez, who lived in Thailand for about five years and was cooking in Bangkok, and they came back here and they were trying to find that creative, those creative juices, and we were really missing that type of cuisine here, and felt like these two who embody so many parts of that really help offer an opportunity for them to be able to showcase what they know and and, and showcase what they do. And so we'll be opening that in the next few months or so uh in in Bulton, which will be pretty fun. Then, that's exciting yeah, f- news. Yeah. Yeah, it should be good. Uh and and then Feed the Valley was I'll make it as abridged as possible but this was came about in April of 2020 when we were it was really you know just a really dark time where you were very already kind of quickly over trying to sell sandwiches and bottles of wine to people and not because everyone wasn't supportive it just didn't feel it felt very it felt very empty in many ways and you just saw a lot of you know, what was death and destruction and a lot of unease. And you quickly come to realize that there was a ton of food insecurity, um, not just amongst maybe frontline workers, but really amongst a certain, uh, an an older generation who weren't able to leave their homes. You had, uh, you know, kind of first-generation families who were dependent upon school lunches, who depended upon... Um, community centers that no longer were able or uh, available to offer meals. And through some private donors who we were speaking with, we essentially built a a model and a program where we as a restaurant would build uh, wholesome hot meals. And we would then work with local social and other kind of other organizations that were much more um, connected to the community and they were able to distribute these meals Um, and over the course of time we became partners with the Santa Barbara Foundation who is our fiscal sponsor so they are our 501c3 partner and we uh, every year along with four other five other restaurants it kind of depends on everybody's Uh, kind of their bandwidth. We make meals every week and distribute them um, to people helping people to the Los Alamos foundation. Um, And, and has been a a really uh, it's really helped connect us to a part of community that we had not been able to really reach. You know, our restaurant is, is expensive um, and, and is not for everyone. And, you start to look at yourself in a way of like, we do this thing, we make this food in this commercial kitchen, like how do we blend both this idea of outreach while also still trying to run a success, successful business in order to employ staff for them to be able to live their lives. And it has been a a, a really purposeful and really meaningful um, three years with, with Feed the Valley. And we've raised over $100,000 and we have fed close to 20,000 people at this point with, with the program. And it's just something that, that we, we feel very passionate about.
1: And, and will so will the Feed the Valley venture, like continue as kind of a consortium of restaurants who kind of provide the food on like a road, like in a rotation?
4: Yeah. Yeah. So yes. So we, uh, our operations manager Andy Davis and uh, and one of our other uh, and Brenda Vasquez who helps us kind of coordinate all those things. Clark stop from Flow of I Flatbreads, Jake Francis from Valley Piggery. We're on a we're on a a set schedule every week and kind of depending on. To be honest, sometimes depending on 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 our funds, we kind of start to, we fluctuate how much we're able to do every week or and it, we're just it's still a very young sort of process and and it's new to us in many ways but the goal is that we will we will continue to grow it and 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 keep it going in perpetuity D- daisy did you want to
1: say something else about it?
3: no i i i mean greg said it all um <laughs> it it is just yeah it's something that um it is nice to to help feed people it's what we do and i would like it not to just be our business but but where we're taking money from people for it, but we're also, it is it is ultimately an easy, not easy is the wrong word, but it is a sensible uh, thing for us to be doing and something we want to be doing. And it gives us another um, element of purpose and another connection to place and and I feel like we've used this word a hundred times already, but community, community and um, yeah, it, it is, it's what ultimately like it is what we should be doing.
1: Well, I think that's great. And I think, you know, Santa Barbara is probably best known for its affluence, but um, it takes exactly. regular working people to make all of these businesses and particularly make the vineyards run. And as one of the most expensive places in the world to live, those kind of things are are, are really important to keep the the community sustained
3: and also keep in perspective
1: yes yes and i was going to give a shout out to the santa barbara foundation who is also our fiscal sponsor for the santa barbara culinary experience so um it's great that we're all working together as i said it's still kind of a small town up there all right we're going to take a break and we'll get our first double julia moment of the season when we come back Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. We'll be right back.
2: When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see?
1: From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Daisy, what's your Julia moment?
3: So I knew you were going to ask that. Um, (laughs) so, (laughs) and you said what first comes to your mind? It's funny. I don't, I don't, remember the first time, I'd, I'd never had a moment where I was like, oh, here's this person. I feel like she's been a part of my zeitgeist my whole life. My my mother, who uh, grew up in the Pasadena area um, as a Julia, um, I mean, we've had her cookbooks in my house since I, I was born. Um, my mom is certainly a, the main influence of how I even became interested in food. She's a lifelong uh, self-taught cook and baker and food has always been a big part of our life. So I just feel like I've been hearing, I've known Julia my whole life in a way. Um, And I have to say that truly there's a lot of things about her, of course, that are inspiring and uh, dare I say, make me feel connected to her. But what I constantly am um, reminded of by her, that she reminds me of is her calmness and her ability to take something that was her whole life and uh, her success was built on and remind people just as in that segment we just heard um, that it is not that big of a deal (laughs) we all eat we can all cook and it is what you make of it and um it is it should and is a pleasurable thing it is is something of course it keeps us alive we all know that but um you know I the thing the the things about Julia and that have always drawn me to her is um in reading books written by her and her cookbooks but uh, most recently I um listen to on tape because i drive quite a bit uh the uh, provence 1970 that's about this later part in her life and james beard and um and mfk fisher and they're all living in provence and is just the what joy it brought to her in the preparation of a meal with friends and the joy of that and mm-hmm. that is for me what really got me um, involved and interested in, in not food, but for me, it was restaurants. It it wasn't like, I'm going to be a chef. I'm going to be a cook. Like I, that is not why I went to culinary school. Um, it wasn't, and of course I love food and, and am interested and inspired by it. But for me, it was the physicality of being together, um, focused on this one thing, drinking some wine and, and preparing something that you can all, do together, be together, and so Julia really embodies that more than you know anybody else I can think of, and uh, just that, yeah. There, and that for me, there's also that that local proximity, and that she lived in Montecito in her later life, and um, and yeah. So she's it's always like she's like this little, um, like <laughs> I guess angel on, on your shoulder a little bit, and uh, and just embodies so many things for me.
1: Yeah, no, I think you just maybe class Julia as a spirit animal, kind of for you. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I suppose, I suppose, yeah. I like that. And I, I just like just everything about her, you know, you I, I I reference her cookbooks all the time, and even you get cookbooks nowadays, and there's recipes that are pages and pages and pages, and it's like, ugh, I I am not a patient person, so I very quickly will close cookbooks like that. It's like, okay, I'll figure it out some other way, and then you open Julia's uh, books, and it's like there are like six recipes on on two pages, you know, three, three recipes on a page and, and just her, like, you can do this thing. And, uh, and, and that is, that feels very supportive.
1: Well, and I I love that you talked about that, the holistic part, because I think that often gets lost in Julia lore about the recipes and the cookbooks and her as a teacher, but, but the value that she really had was the full experience, which is why so many people in Santa Barbara and Newark, she went out all the time because she really, believed in just what you defined of that whole yeah. experience of sharing food with people and, and always wanted to cook with other people to your Provence reference, not solo in the kitchen and then waltzing out saying, look what I made.
2: Exactly.
1: So, yeah. All right, Greg, what's your Julia moment?
4: Uh, my Julia moment is, is really when Daisy and I met each other and the first time that she, as an Oregonian growing up, I'm gonna be honest. I, my, my, my views have changed. I was a bit of an anti-Californian growing up, <laughs> as it goes, um, and uh, and it wasn't like I like you know verbally like spoke poorly about it. it was just like uh, California, and uh, meeting Daisy and and her family and the first time that I came out, we were still living in New York. But the first time I came out to meet her family and everyone in the Santa Barbara area. I remember distinctly at some point she was like, oh, we're going to go eat at what was one of Julia Child's favorite restaurants. And I was like, all right, like this is going to be, you know, I I grew up a little bit with Julia Child, you know, on TV, but my family wasn't, they were were not the biggest kind of restaurant people in many ways. Like they, it just wasn't really in in our zeitgeist. Um, And I remember having this idea in my mind of, like, where we were going to go, um, just having having a bit of a, a skewed idea of, of Julia, I, guess, I think, in a way, and us parking and, like, getting in line at La Super Rica. And part of you is like, this is cool. Like, this is just, like, this, you know, for this person to have a certain sort of of, you know, a totem of American culinary gastronomy and just what you kind of had a perception of that then this person also just really enjoyed an amazing you know taco and and it tends to kind of put you in a a place of of really trying to appreciate and love all aspects of different restaurants and different sort of experiences that could be anything from a kebab stand to a taco to, you know, having a a full kind of dining experience somewhere. And it it was was just kind of, I think about it a lot, I guess.
1: Well, and since we're on radio, can you just, for those who may not be as familiar or even may have heard the Super Rica stories, but haven't ever seen it, can you just describe what it looks like so that that Brings the full picture together.
3: Oh, Greg, are you going to be able to do that?
4: <laughs> Daisy, maybe you go Greg,
3: ahead. Greg's not, very, Greg's not very good at visualizing things. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, okay. maybe, well, maybe
4: da- Daisy might have to. Daisy, go help, ahead. Help him out, Daisy. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, I, I mean, Super Riga is this very um, unassuming building on Milpa Street in Santa Barbara. And it, um, let's see, it's like this, uh, what color is that? It's like a like a turquoise and white building slightly, I don't want to say it's dilapidated. I think they do just fine, but you know, there's this like covered patio on one side and then you walk into this very small space and you order from a window, um, and you get, you know, whatever Mexican lager is your preference. And, um, and then, I mean, just, just like you would hope there's, the family back there making the tortillas, and uh, it's just yeah, it's it's truly. I I would imagine having. I've gone there most of my life, but imagine it's what it's the experience of Mexican food. I think people often want when they are visiting, uh, especially Southern California, um, from anywhere else. And the the it's just it's if you like food, I don't know how you couldn't like that food. It's just wonderful.
1: Yes. It's, yeah, I mean, I would describe it almost like it's kind of like a roadside stand. It really has no yeah, dining for room. Sure. It has an enclosed sort of porch. That, yeah, it has, yeah, it has, it has like
4: that. I don't know if it still has like the, the grass, like the, the fake grass, like on the butt Anyways, yeah, it's
1: cool. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that. And people, but I think it's also that whole experience of it because, because it's become a thing. Everyone, just like you were saying of Who Comes to Bells, most of the people in line, because you'll stand in line at Super Weekend, it's worth it um are it's convivial because everyone's excited to be there and then it helps the food is still wonderful and fresh and that's great i love that story um and that's and it's okay us californians can take the, you know what oregonians think of us but it's probably well oh, i I've I've, I've
4: I've i've flipped it it's it's fine we can talk about that <laughs> offline okay
1: well thanks so much for joining us today
3: thank you thank you so much thank you this was lovely
1: yeah indeed Thanks, everyone, for listening. For more about Daisy and Greg Ryan's ventures, you can check out at Bell's Los Alamos and at Companion Hospitality on Instagram. Daisy is at daisynanryan. Go to bellsrestaurant.com to book a much-sought-after reservation via talk. You should plan ahead. Video clips from The French Chef are arriving weekly on at Julia Child on Facebook, and please follow at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. I'm at T tshulkin on Instagram. Did you know there are Julia Child channels streaming The French Chef on Pluto TV, Plex, and Freevee, as well as on the PBS Living and PBS Documentary channels on Amazon? Revisiting classic Julia episodes has never been easier. Now, have we wet your appetite for visiting the Santa Ana's Valley? I can't imagine that we haven't. The 2023 Taste of Santa Barbara is coming up May 15 to 21. Follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for the latest news about events in and around Santa Barbara, including our upcoming special dinner at La Paloma Cafe on March 8th. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer, Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme songs, New French Horn, by Novi Val Dorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.